church. As we begin our time of worship today, I think about the fact that we, we come into God's house and, you know, some of us were uh, thinking all day yesterday about, oh, did we change the clocks? Do we go ahead and do it now? And I, I spoke to some in the, in the afternoon. I said, I've already changed my clocks. And it was in the middle of the afternoon. And I, and I said, well, Okay, because nobody gets up at 2 o'clock. But this, um, one thing about this Sunday, though, that's always interesting, if, if somebody comes in the church today at 1130, you know, you'll know they forgot. So, uh, and, and then other times, the other time of the year is when they're sitting out there an hour early. They come and, you know, they're, they're sitting out here and they're like, where is everybody? And then they realize. Um, but it, I say all of that to say, you know, there's always things in our mind that when we come to God's house, that it's just best we leave at the door, right? You know, sometimes we come to God's house and there's so many things going on, whether it's in, in family or friends or neighbors or country, whatever it is. But as we come right now before God, you know, and this, this little call to worship we're going to sing just says, Lord, come my spirit. Calm my heart, open the eyes of my heart, that I might see you. Let's sing together. Sing it as a prayer. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. 
The hymn is 350. Let's stand together. You may not know this one as well. We've been singing in the chorus for a few weeks. Shout to the north. Today we're going to add the verses and everything. If you want to look at the music, grab a hymnal. It's 350. It's in our hymn book. And let's ask God to bless our our service. Father, we thank you this morning for this occasion uh, on this Lord's Day to come into your house and to really just offer a a, a worship, a gift back to you for all that you have done. Father, for all that you are, uh, we we offer the gift of worship to you this morning from our hearts and from our souls. Lord, we are mindful presently of all of the different needs and and blessings. Uh, Father, the answered prayers that are among us, even in this sanctuary this morning. And God, we're, we're just, as we're mindful of those things, our hearts rejoice. Um, and, and Father, all the, 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 the faithfulness that you have shown to your people. Uh, Lord, for even just the mobile pantry that we hosted here yesterday. Father, I just pray that you take that food, that you magnify it, that you multiply it for the kingdom's sake. Father, that the gospel is advanced through the simple uh, handing out of food. Uh, Father, as the church partners with the North American Mission Board to... Uh, to evangelize North America. Uh, Father, we know that the need is great, and, and so may we be uh, willing and, and faithful to partner with you uh, in your faithfulness to the gospel. Um, and, Father, for just the ministry, the ongoing ministry of the church. And, Father, we, we, we thank you for the, the blessing that this church is to the Union City area, uh, to Obion County, and to the families that, that, are, that are covenanted together here. Father, we just pray that you continue to bless the ongoing work, the faith of your people, Uh, Father, so that we can glorify your name here in Union City, 
Um, and Father, that we can do good ministry, good work for you um, in our own capacity. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you this morning. And as we do so, may, may you receive this offering, this, this worship, Father, this morning as a gift. And we pray this now. We ask this now in Jesus' name. And amen. The beautiful thing about congregational singing is that we get to, as one voice, lift our hearts and our voices together to glorify and exalt and bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this hymn says that so beautifully. Hymn 297, Majesty, May We Stand As We Sing. Amen. Y'all go ahead and have a seat. This morning we're going to do something just a little differently for our, uh, our scripture reading. I want to, we're going to do a responsive reading. Uh, we've done this before, but uh, it's been a little while. And so if you're, if you're more familiar with uh, a, a hymnal, and it's on page 339, I'm going to encourage you to turn there in your, Bible, or in your Bibles, in your hymnals to 339. The words are going to also be on the screen, but, but, but in order for this to work, we have to, we have to participate, right? Um, there's going to be, there's going to be times when it says worship leader. And I read that if it says worshipers, then we all read together. If it says men, then only the men will read. And if it says women, then only the women will read. All right. Uh, just for clarity and, uh, to clear up any confusion, um, as we go through this responsive reading can be very rewarding in, in a, in a, in a congregation of, of God's people. Um, and our responsive reading today is about the word about the word of God as, uh, as he's declared it from the scriptures. To begin, we say this, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Together, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. I will delight in your statutes. Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. By keeping your word. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their hearts. 
For every one of God's promises is yes in Him. Not forget your word. I will put my hope in your word. Let my cry reach you. Lord, give me understanding according to your word. The entirety of your word is truth, and all your righteous judgments endure forever. Meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Amen. Thank you for, your, for participating in that together as we collectively read the, God, the Word of God in the house of God this morning. Brother? As we just read about the Word of God, we stand on those truths, standing on the promises. If you have your hymnal open, it's hymn 339. Let's stand together as we sing, standing on the promises of God. Gary Houston will come and lead us in our offertory prayer. May we pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for uh, this time and this place. We're grateful for the uh, Sunday school hour and the the word that you've blessed us with and the lessons and the precepts that you have shared with us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will take that and apply that to, to our daily lives, that we will be approachable as Christians, that others will will see us, uh, see you in us. Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, you bless this hour, the uh, worship hour with Brother Ben. Give him a, a message that comes from you. Heavenly Father, we ask that you uh, that uh, 
we uh, take it that it will be used and uh, applied in our daily lives. Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful for this church and the, the work that this church is doing, that you are doing uh, through us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you continue to bless, bless us and bless this church. Bless this community. Be with us. Give us uh, wisdom. Give us discernment in everything that we do, and we look to you. And we're thankful for uh, uh, how you've blessed us in, in so many ways, richly blessings. We, uh, we are using this time to uh, give back to you, uh, not that you need it, but uh, that we want to honor you. So we give to you uh, these that can be used uh, to further your kingdom and your work. Uh, Forgive us where we fail you. In all Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, go ahead and turn in our Bibles to the book of Titus this morning, chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, as we prepare ourselves for worshiping through the Word. Um, Titus chapter 2, specifically verses 3, 4, and 5 is what I want to kind of isolate, draw out, and just kind of speak to this morning. Um, kind of a part 2 of a two-part kind of series on biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. Now, last week we covered biblical masculinity. We got a uh, kind of a deep dive into that and uh, got a lot of great feedback concerning um, biblical masculinity. Uh, And so this week we're going to continue. We're going to kind of flip that coin over and look at biblical femininity. Uh, And my, my goal is to exhort Scripture this morning and, uh, and let Scripture kind of speak uh, to what biblical femininity is. This is similar to last week. Let Scripture kind of define what biblical masculinity is. Um, biblical femininity is clearly outlined in Scripture as well. Now, as a preface, um, it goes without saying that I am not a woman. All right? I know it can be confusing with these long golden locks. But I am not a woman, 
And therefore, I, have, I do not have personal experience with femininity. And so the scripture alone is going to be the authority on this, as it always is. But um, I have no, if you can forgive the pun, dog in this race. I have no reason to, uh, to excel in this area because uh, my understanding of femininity is solely based on what biblical assertions uh, exist. Um, I'm not pretending to know what it means to be a woman this morning. I'm not pretending to know or speak to or preach to womanhood. I'm just simply preaching the biblical requirements as outlined for femininity. Okay? And so that's what we find this morning in the second chapter of the book of Titus. And now, as we kind of mentioned last week, there, there, there comes a time in our society where conversations like this are kind of necessary. We have entered into a, a, a society that doesn't necessarily have clearly outlined parameters for masculinity and femininity. Um, the beauty of that is that as the world is confused and uh, unsure about what that means, the Bible is not. The Bible is very clear. The Bible is settled. The Bible is, is absolutely affirms and, and confirms for us what these things are. And like masculinity last week, there are certain sectors of our society that are not friendly to, that have marred and distorted masculinity or what the definitions thereof are. The same is true for femininity. Uh, there, are, there are pockets, for instance, uh, ideals and initiatives in certain pockets of the women's liberation movement of today that is not friendly to women. Uh, and in many ways, in many ways, are just antithetical to the gospel. They are not friendly to women, and they are antithetical to Scripture. And from these certain areas of the women's liberation movement have come destructive doctrines that are destructive to femininity. For instance, uh, there is now a very prominent theme that women no longer need meaningful relationships with men. That women are actually oppressed or suppressed by the patriarchy. Uh, sometimes you might hear that masculinity, for example, is toxic uh, and that it works against uh, women, that men are actually the ultimate opponents of or enemies of women. Certain areas of femininity today uh, exercise or preach the idea that, that children hold women back from living fulfilling lives um, and that a woman's body is her own and that she is free to do with whatever it is that she wants to do with it. Now, those are all examples of the modern feminist mindset that, uh, that are contrary to or at war against Scripture. And so as, as Christians, as Bible-believing individuals, we have to take Scripture for what it says. And what does it say? Well, it says that God has created women... He has created them with certain giftedness that is unique to their office. That he has given to them and, 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 and blessed them in such a way that is unique to them. That is not shared with any other office on earth. It's to say that God has outlined certain ideals that maximize this giftedness. It's called femininity. And as we look through Scripture this morning, as we look through God's ideal, as we even discussed last week in masculinity, God's ideal for the marriage and for the home and for the church and the, for the community are best. 
and that any deviation away from those ideals cause us as a society to miss the mark. And I think that's consequently where we are. Many now live in such a way that bears the burden of their own ideas and their own definitions of what masculinity and femininity are. Biblical femininity for the purposes of today is clearly outlined in Scripture. It's basically demonstrated in two ways. And this is the way the sermon is going to be broken up this morning in way. Femininity is demonstrated in Scripture by a godly character and godly behavior. And those are the two areas in which femininity is maximized. So if you'll stand with me, let's read God's Word. Let's give it the place of authority this morning. And let's read together... Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, Paul says this, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God, don't miss this last part, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Okay, let's pause, let's pray, and let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we thank you this morning for this word, and as it has now been read, may it be the foremost authority on this topic. Father, may my lips just serve to do the commentary uh, for it. May it, though, reign supreme in our hearts and our minds this morning, and may you bless it. May you bless the reading of your word and the assembling of your people. We pray this now in Christ's name, and amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Now, biblical, in in Paul's exhortation here, in Paul's instruction about biblical femininity, he outlines two basic general areas, like I said, uh, in which femininity is maximized. The first one is that femininity is demonstrated in a godly character. And this is where Paul starts, and this is where consequently, consequently we are as well. The first point that Paul makes in this passage, as he goes from the older men and to the younger women, is he says that biblically feminine women are reverent. Now, this Greek word for reverent in this passage is only used twice in the entire New Testament. We find it here, and we find it in one other part of the Scriptures. Reverence, as it pertains to this word, especially as it pertains to biblical femininity, means that, that the, the, the woman's body is a sacred place, that it becomes a sacred place that is befitting for godliness and holiness. Uh, reverence implies the fact or the concept that the woman's body is suited and outfitted for further growth, for maximizing of a sacred character that is, that is ideal to God. Now, what does this even mean? Well, it means that femininity is the soil by which the seeds of womanhood are sown. Let me repeat that. Femininity is the soil from which the seeds of womanhood are sown. This means that a woman's reverence, uh, that a woman has revered her body to such a degree that she has reserved it for service to God and that it is not her own, according to 1 Corinthians. That our bodies were bought with a price and that women, they honor their bodies with their femininity. It means that she establishes her body as a place for worship and service to God that is holy and acceptable to him, according to Romans 12, 1. Now, when, when, when reverence is established, femininity is maximized. Paul even given us a few examples of what this looks like in women. 
He says that older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Right? That's the, the first, if you will, character trait that he, that he uh, isolates here and gives us uh, as an example. Now, what does this mean, that, 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 that they're not slanderous? Well, in the Greek, it means that they didn't walk around being slandered, meaning that they didn't walk around using their tongues to stab people in the back or falsely accuse others or even use their tongues for divisive purposes. In fact, this Greek word, if you look, if you look it up in the Greek, that Paul uses for slanderer is diablos. Everybody knows that word, which is in our English, the root word for the word devil. That she is not diablos. In its proper sense, diablos is the New Testament name for Satan. A slanderer of the brethren. That's him by title. And in fact, in every New Testament, almost in every New Testament application of the word diablos, it refers to the devil. But here we find Paul using it in context of a woman's femininity. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means that when women fail to be reverent, they default into a slanderous position. In essence, they begin to do the work of the devil by allowing their tongues to cause division. And that's quite a harsh accusation from Paul. But I think we can all appreciate and we can testify to what this looks like in our modern world. We all know what Paul is talking about here, right? And I think that's the point. That, that Paul is saying nothing is more of an affront to God's ideal to biblical femininity than a woman being slanderous. Because that's not, her, that's not her ideal design for God. God designed her to be reverent. And biblically feminine women who are reverent have self-control. They're able to, to use their bodies to, to, to glorify the Lord concerning things that are right, things that are good, things that are proper. And that's what he continues to say here in this other part. Not given to much wine. They have self-control. They are teachers of good things. They are useful to God in that they model what is right. They model what is good. They model what is proper. And in so doing, their beauty comes from their self-expression of godliness. And this is, this is something that, that our world can, 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 could 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 learn from or yield the fruits thereof if it returned back to it. Because a woman's beauty is really found in her reverence, in her self-expression of godliness to the world. The second thing Paul isolates here for character is that biblically feminine women desire a godly character for other women. He says this in verse 4 that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. So Paul says once a woman has secured her own reverence, she then desires it for others, namely in that of her own daughters or in other women that she finds herself around. Now, there's two parts to this. There's two parts to the teaching that Paul is discussing here. The first way that, that women, uh, the, the first way that biblically feminine women anyway teach it to other women is, first of all, through modeling. They model biblical femininity. And this is obviously the most powerful way to teach a child is to model to them what is right and proper. Thus, it follows that young women will model the behaviors and the patterns of the older women who they keep company with. And if we see trends that are 
ungodly or unbiblical or uh, unbecoming of femininity, then we can immediately begin to trace it back to what is being modeled in our society. The second way this happens is through intentional discipleship. What this looks like is what Paul is describing to us here. The older, the wiser women pulling up alongside the younger women and teaching them what they need to know. Right? And, and, and this, looks, this looks different in all kinds of different areas. But Paul isolates two areas in which the older women teach the younger women what it means to be biblically feminine. Well, they teach them to love their husbands and they teach them to love their children. Two women... And I'll just take my wife's example of this. Two women, these areas, capture an entire lifetime of service to the Lord in loving her husband and in loving her children. These areas require much insight and in much wisdom. Both of these subgroups can be the hardest thing that a woman will ever do to love her husband and to love her children well. But how a woman loves these groups, how a woman spends her time loving these two groups testifies to her character, arguably more than any other thing she will do on earth. Husbands are not always easy to love, are they, women? I know I'm not. It's it's okay. You can laugh. You can chuckle. I know children are not always easy to love. And so there are times, there are times when it's good for women, and it's good for men too, but specifically for women, it's good for them to be able to go to another woman and get counsel, to get help. Because there are times in life when you just need that. And Paul says this is the way it should be done. This is the ideal Yeah, because there are lessons that older women have that younger women don't. And if they just teach it to them, then they'll be able to continue that on through the generations. Now, this works in the home. It works in the church. It works in the community. All of these areas thriving on godly character that are modeled and discipled in women teaching other women. Because the best teacher that a woman can have concerning the affairs of her life is another woman. And this is Paul's ideal. This is God's ideal for femininity. Thirdly, biblically feminine women, according to character, biblically feminine women are naturally nurturing. This is, uh, this is a beautiful, this is sometimes beautifully expressed in, in lots of ways, but, but, but femininity naturally assumes a nurturing predisposition. And this, is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is wonderful to watch. Uh, played out not just in the human world, but also in the animal world as well. That godly, uniquely created women to express their innate desire and ability to just nurture that which she loves. Biblical femininity manifests this in beautiful ways, especially when it comes to maybe childbirth. Watch a mother naturally nurture her newborn child. Right? It's beautiful. But it's also beautiful when a mother defends her children. It's another very natural way of nurturing her children. It's why, especially in the animal kingdom, you don't cross mother bear and her cubs. Amen? 
Because there is no telling what that mother bear will do if you threaten her children. This is true for humans as well. Women naturally are, are natural nurturers of that which they love. And they will defend and they will do whatever it takes to protect their children. And it's a beautiful thing. Right? I think it's most captured, most maximized, most modeled in femininity, to be honest with you, not masculinity. I don't see men as, as divinely created to be as naturally nurturing as women. It's true. It's, it's part of the office that, that, are, that is specifically designed for women to execute. Um, we as men are just, we're just, we're, we're just not created like that. It's not to say that we can't be nurturing. It's not to say that we shouldn't be. It's just to say that it's not as natural for us as our female counterparts. Now, this is something of a twisted, distorted nature that's taken on our society in recent times is that, that this naturally nurturing nature uh, or this nurturing nature in women it seems to be under attack. Uh, it, it does seem to be like uh, this natural instinct is being shoved aside by many of the facets of the modern feminist movement. Uh, it, it goes against... Uh, for, for instance, you have, you have things that are, that, are, that are ideological and things that are, that are, that are even doctrinal in some ways that, that go against the natural design for a woman to be nurturing. But God empowered women to be the nurturing type. That's just the way he made them, to care for others out of her own instinct. And the rest of the world benefits from that. Whether it's children whether it's the church, whether it's the community, the rest of the world benefits from this nurturing. And so that's kind of Paul's outline to the character. The second part that he gets into with biblical femininity is the godly behavior. The second part of demonstrating femininity by the godly behavior. The, the first thing that this is all outlined in verse 5, that they are to be discreet, Chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, there are some components to this that are dissonant to our modern world. But aside from that, there are things that Paul says that biblical femininity requires. The first one is modesty. Biblical femininity requires modesty. Now, immediately when we say that word, our minds go straight to how they dress, how women dress. And I've even heard that this morning as we stood in the hallway drinking coffee. We're not going to harp and rail on hair length and whether women can wear pants, etc. I said, no, I'm not going there. Paul's exhortation to modesty is much bigger than just simply what a woman puts on her body. It goes bigger, it's deeper than that. It, it's one of the most, if you will, modesty is one of the most visible ways in, women, in which a woman demonstrates her femininity, her self-expression, if you will. Biblical modesty, more than just attire, it's actually an outward expression of an inward situation, uh, uh, an inward humility, if you will. Uh, an individual who is uh, secured of, in Christ on the inside will reflect that outwardly. And when biblically feminine women exercise their modesty, they respect their body as not being their own. 
knowing that it was bought with a price, and is reflective of what Christ desires in femininity. In the totality, whether you're looking at Corinthians or whether you're looking this morning here at Titus, in the totality of Paul's instructions on the subject, modesty can best be summarized as a behavior that flows out of the remembering of one's true place of service and does not conceitedly bear or rather boast about the self, but boasts in God. So when we really get to the issue of modesty, we're really not talking about what we put on and all those kinds of things. It's much of what we understand about ourselves in Christ, and we express that in our dress, in our behavior, in our language. And we seek a way that most glorifies God. Right? Amen? Um, That's the ideal for Modesty, and it's a multifaceted thing. It covers a broad array of self-respect. But when a woman understands her value in Christ, she will naturally reflect that outwardly. Now, you all have heard me speak to this issue enough in our modern church. Um, it does seem like we have lost grasp of modesty in our, in our modern world, uh, especially in the household of God, and that's the only jurisdiction that I'm really over uh, authoritative to this morning is, is in the house of God, people should reflect the inward heart. They should dress accordingly. They should speak accordingly. They should behave accordingly in a way that glorifies God. And when a woman does this, when a woman exercises this femininity, she respects ultimately Christ and respects herself. As she respects herself... She, in turn, respects the others who are around her in how she presents herself. In many ways, modesty is a skill that goes back to the older women teaching the younger ones. I'm sure many of you probably remember your mother telling you, you're not wearing that. Amen? I didn't have that experience. But I have heard it before. Um, but it's oftentimes expressed through this, this generational passing of the baton. Young girls are taught this skill when they're most impressionable and when they're captured by the admonition of an older woman who models it. I mean, it goes without saying that our culture, that our society would really bear the fruit of this once again if it returned to this. The second thing that Paul mentions here is not only are they discreet, not only are they chaste and homemakers, but he says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5 that women are also, biblical femininity anyway, requires a certain submissiveness. And, and I've discussed this before, and I'm not going to go into all of the, the details of submissiveness, but it is arguably one of the most misunderstood components of the scriptures again just coming like almost like judge not right like women be submissive to your husband and then that's the end of the sentence when in fact that's not the end of the sentence if we hear wives submit to your husbands we should also hear as unto the lord because that's the point right submissiveness is not necessarily about submission in for the sake of submission but in an, an exalting God in one's life. The point to God asking wives to submit to their husband is that in so doing, they're ultimately submitting to him. 
They're ultimately submitting to his leadership and his ideal design for them. Thus, Paul says it's good for women to submit to their husbands. A godly husband at that. As he is divinely appointed as the head of their home, the head of their marriage, the head of the church. And again, I know this is dissonant with our modern world. I know this cuts cuts against the grain of everything that we've been taught in our lifetimes. But it's still God's ideal. And we should give credence to it. We should be obedient to it. Men not loving their wives in a way that Christ loved the church is a great way that this is marred in our society. Right? We want to sit there and say, well, wives just submit to the husband, but we don't require him to be a godly man. Well, that's, that's a marred mentality. That's a, that's a false predisposition as it pertains to submission. I mean, we have infidelity. We have, as we talked last week, distorted views of egalitarianism. That a woman's role is just in submission to her husband and that's all she's good for. But we can't forget that, that, that the ideal for marriage, the, the, the picture for marriage is to capture the relationship that God has with his church. Right? Christ, as the bridegroom, is betrothed to his bride, the church. And as the church submits to the headship of Christ... He, in turn, loves her sacrificially. The marriage, then, is the earthly institution designed to reflect this. And as Christian men and women engage in the biblical marriage, they testify to the world about the ideal of Christ and his bride. Thirdly, biblical femininity requires purity. And this is the last behavioral element that Paul teaches this morning that deals with Behavior. Is that a purity? Purity as it pertains to femininity is God's ideal that a woman remains undefiled. I mean, it goes without saying that she should be holy and uncontaminated in her nature. Biblical femininity is designed to be attractive, not repulsive. Many of our components of femininity today are repulsive. They're just disgusting. Let's just be honest. Women who are feminine exude an attractiveness, not a repulsiveness. It's meant to showcase the beauty that God gave to women inside and out. And my mind is immediately drawn to scriptures like the Song of Solomon, Proverbs 31, and into those other areas of, of classical femininity like a woman's hair is her glory, those kinds of things. Additionally, Being pure speaks to the ministerial capacity that God has given to women in the Lord. There's scriptures that showcase women's capacity in ministry. People like Mary of Magdala, Phoebe, Deborah, and even Mary, Christ, own mother. These are women who were maximized in the ministry because they were pure in heart. Their faithfulness to Christ was expressed through their ministerial capacities. Now, this last part that I want to get to in your bulletin, in your outline, is really just a summary, kind of a, a, an aside from Paul's teachings as it pertains to the very last thing that he says, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. What is the point? 
What is the summation of biblical femininity? Why should we even care? We, last week, we talked about biblical masculinity, and we talked about why it even matters. Why is femininity important? Well, because it glorifies God, period. It's glorifying to the Lord when women are feminine. The first point to this is that biblically feminine women, in glorifying the Lord, complement biblically masculine men. And again, we, we talked about egalitarianism last week and how this is this competition. There's this divine clash between the sexes and how it just plays out in every sec- sector of our society when in fact God's ideal is that biblically masculine men and biblically masculine women complement each other. Right? There are no other institutions on earth that has the ideals and the goals that men and women have when they maximize in themselves the goals and the gifts that they've been given. And they work together for those goals. There is no other institution on earth that can do what the marriage can. None. Right? I mean, even if you want to get into actually the, the, the details of, of what that means, whether that's actually having children. Only men and women can have children. And preserve the species. Other groups that want to claim marriage cannot do that. That of homosexuality especially. The husband and the wife are the only ones who can raise their children in the fear of God. That they can grow closer together as they experience life together. That they work together through life's difficulties. Not give up. Not throw in the towel, not just abandon one another, but that they work together in God's design because this union between husband and wife is glorifying to God. It's ultimately glorifying in the union that Christ has with his church. And any other alternative is is going to destroy, it's going to destroy, it's going to be a ripoff, if you will, of God's ideal design. Egalitarianism will not accomplish what complementarianism can. Modern feminists cannot do what biblical feminists can. And any other definition to marriage is an abomination to God's design, and it will not do according to Scripture. And then lastly, biblical femininity advances the gospel. As Paul rightly finishes his exhortation on biblical femininity, he says that the word of God may not be blasphemed. What's he saying here? Well, in a nutshell, he's basically saying that women, when they practice their God-given femininity to their glory of God, that they advance the gospel of Jesus Christ on earth. Now, I, I have the privilege of being able to do this with my wife. And I've, I've watched for 20, almost three years. I've watched her excel in her femininity and and, and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ through her office. How? Well, we've got two kids sitting right there that are the next generation of believers. Amen? And there are things that those two children need that I can't give them, that only mom can But as she pours into them, kids, and as I pour into them together, we advance the gospel to the next generation. You know, I I could sit here and I could sit here all day long and I could worry about what my kids are going to see in the next generation. 
let me just pause and back up. I could, I could sit here and cringe at what they're already seeing in this generation. And then I could wring my hands over what it's going to be like for my grandkids or whatever. But, or, or I can rest assuredly in that the principles that we have instilled in the ideals of God will advance in their lifetime just as it did in mine. And as I've seen things grow progressively worse in mine, as they watch it too, and it will, that they can remain faithful to God and his gospel and advance it through rearing of their own children. That's the point. And that's why, it's all, that's why it all matters anyway. That's why femininity should be protected and fostered. It's why it should be an ideal that is, that is defined and structured by God and not by us. Because we have an entire generation on the line here. Biblically feminine women not only raise the next generation of believers, they do so by using their femininity to complement the work and the ministry of their husbands. One of the most powerful testimonies to the grace of God on earth is to watch a godly husband and wife grow old together and watch them live life together. Because it advances the gospel more powerfully than probably any other testimony on earth. People watch that. People have, I, look, there are people in my life that I have, I have met who are going on to be with the Lord now, but they grew old together. Some of them married for 60, 70 years. And I just sat back and I admired the beautiful testimony of the gospel that they lived through the faithfulness they had to one another. That advances the gospel. Biblically feminine women advance the gospel by serving in their local church. I mean, it goes without saying that some of the things in the church would probably never get done if women didn't do them. It's true. And all are doers. And, and you're really oftentimes not willing to wait for somebody to do it. You're just going to jump in there and do it. Amen to that. I like that. We, we need that. Because the work of women is important and crucial to the Lord. It's important to the church. It advances the gospel. It advances the ministry of, of, of the kingdom of God locally. Biblically feminine women advance the gospel by expressing their faith to the world through their testimony of modesty and purity. We need these elements back into our society because to this end, war has been declared against biblical femininity. And to those ends, those who serve the serpent have picked up the work of Genesis chapter 3 and have brought it to the thresholds of women. It has laid down at their feet doctrines that have redefined womanhood, that have redefined femininity. These doctrines seek the children to which she has been cared for. They seek her position. They seek her life in Christ. Biblical femininity is a sacred office for women. It must, as Paul says here, it must be defended in its integrity. And it must hold fast. Because there's too much on the line. Too much at stake for, for us to just let back and, and let the world define what a woman is. We talked in Sunday school just briefly, and I'm going to close. 
talked in Sunday school this morning about how our society has, has, has demanded or commanded so much of the conversation that the church, instead of leaning into these conversations, we now lean out of them. We're, we're allowing, if you will, the, the, the dialogue to be defined by our secular humanist counterparts, many of which are atheist, many of which are antagonistic to Scripture, they are legislating, they are, they are defining, and we're letting them because we're just, we're just not in the discussion whatsoever. But war has been declared against both men and women in our society. And that necessitated the, the whole point to why we even talk about biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. Because war has been declared. And we as Christians, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And there's consequences to not being engaged in this war. We are to lean into it in our own lives, marriages, families, homes, and in our church, in our community. Because people want to hear this. They might disagree with it. That's okay. But they have to hear it nonetheless. Because the only other alternatives are perversion and distortions and, and disgusting diseases that are, that are traveling all over our, our, our country. Christians lean in. Discuss these things openly with grace and with mercy and allow God's ideal to be pushed forward, to be advanced and ultimately live a life that is glorifying and honoring to God whether you are a man or a woman and bear bear testimony to his ideals in this dark, dark world. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for this time together from from as, as we gathered around Paul's words in Titus, I, I just pray that, that your truth is illuminated. Father, that, that, that all of the elements of femininity are, are, are captured and defined biblically for us this morning. That we don't have to wonder or, or guess or even offer suggestions to the alternative. Father, we, we know what you desire for, for, for men and for women. Father, I just pray that over the last two weeks that we have that we have grown deeper in our knowledge of these issues and these topics, that we can not only just grow in our knowledge of them, that we can embrace them individually, that as men, we can become more biblically masculine, and as women, that we can exercise our femininity to the grace of God, to the glory of God, Father, that the kingdom of God may advance on this earth. Father, may this not be a discussion that's drug into the mud, that's relabeled chauvinist or sexist or, or feminist or anything, but that it's biblical as outlined and defined by you. Father, your ideals are best. And Father, may we be instruments of that peace and reconciliation to this world, speaking into the darkness the truths of your word. Father, I thank you for this time together with this body of believers. I thank you for this congregation that has received this word. Father, now you may, may you bless it. May you, may you glorify it to your ends. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here
His Father, Son, 